You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at Home and Abroad, and we've had the opportunity previously to chat to David Wilson about a variety of things, from the tin whistle, where he took his bike and his whistle and went into some very interesting and remote parts of Ireland, and the reactions varied depending on where he was and the piece of music he chose to play. And we also talked about him and his work on Thomas Darcy McGee, but he is also uh, now written and has published Canadian Spy Story, Irish Revolutionaries and the Secret Police. And uh, it is in the mid-19th century, a group of Irish revolutionaries known as the Fenians set out to destroy British, Britain's North American Empire. Between 1866 and 1871, they launched a series of armed raids in to the Canadian Territory. And I have to say, um, I remember reading about this, and what blew me away was that they congregated in Buffalo, as far as I recall. Or, yeah. And the number that congregated, and they came on trains from all over the US, and then they also congregated in Vermont. And um, nobody actually seemed to think that this was going anywhere or was anywhere serious. So uh, I was just baffled by the number of people who congregated. And apparently on for the weekend or the, the, before the Fenian invasion, um, you couldn't walk down the street in Buffalo without it being a bit like Grafton Street with Irish people. David Wilson, thanks a million for coming along. And I hope I'm not stealing your thunder at, at that. Not at all. In, in fact, uh, the picture I have of Buffalo uh, just before that raid, which took place May 31st, June 1st in 1866, is very different from the... Uh, from the standard one, uh, when uh, when secret agents went to Buffalo from Canada to investigate, and the the British consul in Buffalo ran his own agent, they found things very very quiet uh, the days before uh, the invasion. Uh, in fact, so much so that uh, one of the detectives uh, telegraphed back that nothing was going on here, and you know it was just business as usual. Um, and a lot of them were coming in from from outside. Um, the, the the day of the invasion, yes, there were many many people uh, coming in, and they were they were very serious about this. And um, uh, in retrospect, it all seems somewhat bizarre and absurd that a group of Irish Americans would think that they could liberate Ireland by attacking Canada. But there was a lot more to it than that. Um, for one thing, uh, within Irish America, Irish Catholic America particularly since the famine, there was a deep well of anger and resentment against the British government uh, because the British government was blamed either for causing the famine or not doing enough to alleviate uh, the famine conditions. So there was, there was a, an incredible degree of anger from people who'd been uprooted, uh, who had endured coffin ships crossing the Atlantic um, and had often endured pretty grim living conditions in American cities. So one question was, what do you do if you're an Irish nationalist in the United States? What do you do with that anger? How do you channel it? And um, opinion was divided about this. One was to uh, wait until the Civil War was over and then to uh, bring Irish people who'd been trained in uh, the military arts to Ireland where they could aid and abet an Irish revolution. And the other was to hit the British Empire where it was most vulnerable, 
where it was weakest. Now, the former view that you should go directly to Ireland uh, was seriously uh, damaged by two considerations. First of all, um, there was a crackdown on the Fenian Brotherhood in Ireland in September of 1865. The Civil War ended in April of 1865. So now the prospects of an Irish revolution have receded. And secondly, the logistical difficulties of getting so many people across the Atlantic when the Royal Navy ruled the seas. Canada, though, was a much more tempting target. The Union Jack flew in Canada. Um, the... the the blood-drenched rag, as one Irish nationalist called it. That was actually Thomas Darcy McGee in his pre-loyalist days. Right. But it was a symbol of, uh, of British rule, British power. And a central tenet of Irish revolutionary belief, going right back to Wolfe Tone in the 1790s, was England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. Now, that meant wait until England is at war. And then you will have the space to, uh, to, to launch a successful Irish revolution. The Irish revolutionaries have pinned their hopes on France, but France kept letting them down by refusing to go to war with Britain. But what about the United States? If you could trigger a war between Britain and the United States, what would happen? Well, what had already happened in 1861 when it looked like it was going to be a war? Uh, 10,000 British soldiers had crossed the Atlantic. So you had a precedent for this. So mm-hmm. if you can draw British soldiers across the Atlantic to defend Canada, it opens up the space for a revolution in Ireland. And if you can hold some territory in Canada for long enough, two things will happen, they hope. One is that more and more Irish Americans will come north to join them, strengthening the forces. And the other is the folks back home will be inspired by uh, by Irish nationalist victories. And indeed, the Battle of Ridgeway, which was a Fenian victory, was praised even in the constitutional nationalist press as the greatest uh, triumph in arms of the Irish since the Battle of Castlebar in 1798. Also in this, uh, thinking about this, there was the assumption that French Canadians would at, um, uh, at worst be neutral because they were fellow Catholics trapped in a Protestant British Empire and that the Irish in Canada, uh, Irish Catholics in Canada, at any rate, would either uh, be neutral or would actively assist them. And indeed, there was a, an underground Fenian network in Canada. That's something I spent a lot of time exploring in the book. Hardly anyone knows about this. It's absolutely fascinating. And the Fenians in the United States had their own secret service. Uh, never mind the Canadian secret police, they had their own secret service with emissaries linking up with Fenians in Canada. And the idea was that the Fenians in Canada would take hostages, including one Thomas Darcy McGee. Uh, they would blow up buildings. They would uh, uh, disrupt communications, telegraph communications. They would blow up bridges. They would do everything they could to tie down um, the British and Canadian forces to create a space for the Fenian invaders. So they were very serious about this indeed. And yet, um, despite the success, uh, and it, you know, they arrived at Ridgeway and it was successful. And uh, I remember reading about that and that Canada's response was such that they did not have the trained forces to go and take them on. And in many cases, they were calling on university students, as I recall, from Toronto to go out and defend Canada. 
And literally, as I understand it, the Irish kind of upped and turned around and walked back home. Uh, yes, what, what happened was this at Ridgeway, um, and you're quite right, university students from Toronto were part of the, uh, of the militia, um, and uh, they, uh, in the Queen's own, the Queen's own rifles, um, and uh, they went to the front. Their professors, I should add, stayed behind. <laughs> 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 it was ever thus. Um, but yes, it, most of them had never fired a, a live round, um, and they were up against Civil War veterans. Um, but what what happened basically, without going into the details of the Battle of Ridgeway, which I could do, but um, but what happened was after the uh, Fenian victory at Ridgeway, um, they they were expecting that the idea was to draw off. British troops from Canada East, present-day Quebec, to create space for the major theatre of operations, which would be from Vermont. So John O'Neill, the Fenian leader, gets the word that nothing's happened yet in Vermont. And so now and he knows that the British Army is now moving in, um, and they have vastly superior forces. He has about 800 men, and uh, he knows now that he can't break through. So he reports back to headquarters and he says, we will fight if the, uh, the folks in Vermont uh, launch their raid. Um, we will go ahead. With, we'll say, we will essentially sacrifice ourselves for them. When he got the word that the raid in Vermont was delayed, um, there was no word, in fact, that it had actually transpired. It would later. Um, he decided that the safest course of action would be to go back to Buffalo. And then they were intercepted by the United States. And this is a, another important factor in all of this. Many of the Fenian assumptions were just wrong. Mm -hmm. they were, uh, they'd been led to believe by the American government that they would have the tacit support of the American government. The American government only did that to, um, to try and safeguard the Irish vote in the United States. They had no intention of recognizing or, quote, acknowledging accomplished facts, which is what they told the Fenians they would do. We will acknowledge accomplished facts. But what they didn't tell the Fenians was they were going to make damn sure those facts would not be uh, accomplished or acknowledged right. uh, to begin with. Um, so the Americans stopped, stopped the, uh, uh, the Irish-Americans who were streaming in towards Buffalo and later Vermont to join the army. The IRA, by the way, it was called the Irish Republican Army, um, and also other assumptions were wrong. Uh, the, um, uh, the French Canadians uh, did not want to um, exchange the British Empire for an ultra-Protestant American empire. They saw no value in that. They were much more conservative than the Fenians realized. Um, and many Irish Catholics uh, actually uh, rejected the invasion strategy. And the, the Fenians in Canada, and they probably constituted about a quarter to a third of the population of the Irish Catholic population in Canada, much, much more substantial minority than people have been led to believe. Um, but the Fenians in Canada were themselves divided between those who wanted to focus on Ireland and those who supported the invasion uh, strategy. Uh, so, um, so really uh, the idea that uh, you'd just be left with a remnant of Protestant orange men who could be, quote, cut to pieces by the Fenians. Once you take out the French Canadians you, from the equation, you take out 
Irish Catholics from the equation. Who are you left with? You know, just just uh, just a group of um, of orange men who can easily be isolated and cut to pieces. All those premises were wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's understandable why they would have had them. You know, the French Canadians they linked up with uh, were radical French Canadians who said, "We we will give you our support." The Irish Catholics they were linking up with were their fellow Fenians who were also exaggerating the degree of support. The American government, as I said, led them on. So there's actually a sort of double uh, twist here because the Fenians are trying to use the Americans to lure them into a war with Britain. And the American government is trying to use the Fenians uh, to show that they support Irish nationalism, but the American government never actually expected them to go through with it. Yeah. And when they did, they were stopped. So, David, two things. One is you did mention it was after the Civil War. So here you had people coming together who had been on opposite sides in the Civil War and coming back to a single uh, ambition. And um, no matter how you kind to, to say bury the hatchet, there will always be certain undercurrents. And when it comes to things like uh, information, Trust is such a vital part of it. And you said there was a Fenian underground in the US and a Fenian underground in Canada. Um, how, and, and I get from the Canadian side, yes, what they were doing is they were talking to consultants. They were telling them, talking to people who, who were telling them what they wanted to hear. So, exactly. So, so were the consultants on the US side as well? Well, Interestingly enough, um, on the U.S. side, uh, yeah, talking about the Civil War and the split, uh, after the the retreat at Ridgeway and the failure of the raid in Vermont, the Fenians in the United States regrouped, but, but it took them a while to do that. And uh, as they cast around for, for strategies, one of the things they did was approach Confederate generals. And uh, they had negotiations with uh, with three Confederate generals who expressed their interest in uh, leading uh, the next uh, invasion. Um, but they backed out when they realized that not enough money was coming in and the, the, uh, the venture was likely to fail. And this was a major dilemma that, that the, the Fenian Brotherhood faced. After the, the failure of Ridgeway, uh, I mean, they won the battle, but they lost the war. Um, they, their response was, the Americans betrayed us. So the first thing we have to do is change the American government. So they, 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 they worked against Andrew Johnson's government uh, and uh, with the British clandestinely supporting that government, actually, at the same time. Um, so that was, that was the first thing they did. The second thing they did was try to raise money. But... Um, there, there is catch-22. You can't raise money without a good prospect of success, and there isn't a good prospect of success if you can't raise money. And John O'Neill, uh, who becomes the, the president of uh, the uh, Fenian Brotherhood, uh, the invasion wing of the Fenian Brotherhood, uh, bends over backwards to get, to get money. He goes on, on uh, fundraising tour after fundraising tour. His predecessor, William Roberts, who ran the show in 1867, did the same thing. Um, and this is actually one of the areas where the Canadian secret police enter the picture because they, they did very int- 
a very interesting job of infiltrating the Fenian Brotherhood. And this was a side of the story. So everything I've been saying so far, I think, is, um, is pretty well known to historians. But the other side of this story, the, uh, the operations of the Canadian secret police force, have hardly been looked at at all. And they're absolutely fascinating. And the sources are amazing. You've not only got sources in the States and in uh, Ireland and in Britain, but in Canada alone, in the John A. Macdonald papers, you have 3,000, 3,000 letters from de- detective secret policemen in the field to their handlers, to John A. Macdonald and Georges Etienne Cartier and back down the chain again. It's an absolute gold mine, and it enables us to recreate this, not only the world of the secret police, but also the world of the Fenians from their reports. You get really interesting reports of, you know, Fenian meetings in Brooklyn, for example, mm. or um, a Fenian cell in Toronto and how it's operating, uh, which you can then check against um, Fenian accounts of the same cell in Toronto. You get a really interesting picture of this. And one of the many surprises I found in, in writing this book is that actually, contrary to this sort of the stereotypical image of um, the Fenians leaking uh, information all the time, um, they were very, very difficult to penetrate before 1866. I mean, they took... They took the, the Canadians by surprise in the Battle of Ridge, in, in the invasion of June 1866. That was an astonishing feat when you consider the logistics of organizing, getting people on rail, railways, uh, getting the, the guns in place, getting everything together. And this was partly done through the fog of war. There were so many false alarms uh, that uh, the Canadian authorities became complacent. It was partly because um, a Fenian raid on New Brunswick um, in April by the rival Fenian Brotherhood had had been beaten before it started. So the Canadians thought, oh, well, it's game over for, for, the, for invasion. So there's a lot of complacency uh, going on. So uh, the, uh, uh, the overall picture uh, before June of 1866 was that the secret police could not get at the top of the Fenian Brotherhood. Oh, they got all kinds of rumours, the, the, kind of, the kind of morale-boosting stuff that was being fed to the rank and file and that was being repeated in the bars. We've got thousands of boys, you know, we're sending guns galore, all of this. One, one exasperated secret policeman said, all you can get out of them is Irish liberty and independence. That's all you can get out of them. Um, so, so before... Ridgeway, um, they were a closed door. And the secret police were thinking of everything. I mean, this, the head of the secret police in Ontario, now Ontario, uh, had this plan to employ prostitutes uh, to, um, to bed down with the, uh, with the uh, Fenian leadership and get information from them that way. And he suggested this to John A. Macdonald. And uh, John A. Macdonald never replied, or if he did reply, it was, <laughs> was out. But there's no evidence that that was actually done, suggesting to me that copulating for Canada was just going a step too far. You know? I won't say what's going through my head, but I might when we finish up. Um, but you're talking in terms of a police force, a secret police force in 1866, so it's pre-Confederation. 
And you talk in terms of it filtering back up to John A. MacDonald. The structure of the police at that time within Canada, where was the centre of command and to what extent geographically was it covering? Well, the, the uh, structure of, uh, of general policing was municipal okay. um, and it varied a great deal. And there was also an incredible degree of corruption within different police forces. I mean, the, the police chief of Hamilton, for example, was on the take from a gang of robbers. Uh, there was, and there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. In Toronto before 1859, um, the, uh, the police the police force were, uh, the, the, the city police uh, were really corrupt, heavily influenced by the Orange Order. Uh, the police saw nothing when it came to Protestant violence on Catholics and a great deal when it came to Catholic violence on Protestants. And, and there have been previous, even non-sectarian examples of this. Whenever orange men were involved in a riot, nothing to do with religion, nothing whatsoever, um, the, the policemen would look the other way. So, I mean, there's a lot of, so there's a lot of local variations here, but the, the secret police were organized uh, nationally, if you like. I mean, Canada Canada was divided between Canada West and Canada East uh, before Confederation, uh, with John A. Macdonald as the Attorney General uh, dealing with, uh, basically with Canada West, Ontario, and Georges-Étienne Cartier with Canada East, Quebec. And uh, the police force was, the secret police force was modeled along those lines. So in Ontario, it went to a man called was run by a Scot by the name of Gilbert McMicken, who was very, as John A. McDonald said, cool, shrewd, and determined. He was actually a brilliant spymaster. And in in Quebec, it was run by a man called Frederick William Ermatinger, um, whose um, whose father had been a fur trader and whose mother had, was an indigenous person. It's very interesting. He had a military background. Um, now, as far as actually unraveling this is concerned. Um, the sources for Ontario are much, much better because Georges-Étienne Cartier's papers burned down. Um, and we, we do get reports from Ontario, from, from Quebec, but only the ones that filtered through to Ontario. Um, so even though much of the action was actually going on in Quebec, especially after 1867, I mean, Montreal becomes the hub, uh, most of our sources are on Ontario. Um, uh, Ottawa, Toronto. Ottawa was quite a Fenian stronghold. Uh, Ottawa, uh, Toronto, which was a pacemaker. N- some evidence in Hamilton, uh, but basically spread out wherever you've got Irish Catholics, including in rural areas, wherever you've got concentrations of Irish Catholics, you're going to find a few Fenians. They're going to be in a minority for the most part, but they're going to be there. The police force itself, uh, the formation of the secret police force had nothing to do with the Fenians. Absolutely nothing. It was founded in the winter of 1864-65 because of Confederate raids from Canada to the United States. So its initial purpose was not to protect Canada from American-based raids, but to protect America from Canadian-based raids. Because if you didn't do that, you ran the risk of Americans coming up and sorting things out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Or a passport system has already been introduced. There could be economic reprisals against Canada. So when the Civil War ends in 1865, the summer of 1865, the secret police force is being wound down. And they had, 
they only had about 15 members in Ontario. I think more in Ontario, uh, sorry, in Quebec, but about 15 members in Ontario. They're being wound down. And then in September of 1865, word starts to come through from the states that the Irish Revolutionary Movement has been suppressed. Uh, There are a number of Irish-American Fenians who are thinking of switching their attention to Canada. Then John A. Macdonald takes notice and says, we've got to watch these guys. So the the secret police uh, start rehiring people. But they were always very small in numbers. I think that they, they never got past 20. Um, and actually, at their most efficient, there were about six or seven of them. But at their most efficient, this is after Ridgeway, um, they got to some of the they, – they were able to infiltrate the highest levels of the Fenian Brotherhood. And the way they did that was um, by setting up their own fake Fenian circle or cell in Missouri. And, and this remarkable, egregious, outrageous character, Charles Clark, who calls himself Cornelius O'Sullivan when he's mixing with the Fenians, becomes a top d- detective. He's called the best detective in, in Canada. He's a... He's a kind of person you could make a Netflix series about as an mm-hmm. anti-hero. Um, he not only deceives the Fenians he's working with, he deceives and betrays women left, right, and center along the way. And that's actually, that's ultimately his downfall in, in Canada. Um, but he, he manages to get in with William Roberts, the president of the Fenian Brotherhood in 1867, um, uh, by presenting himself as a Fenian delegate from Missouri, and he also meets other Fenians. He fools them as well. Uh, he starts speaking at Fenian rallies, and um, then the Canadian government buys a pony for him to give to William Roberts's 11-year-old son, and this is supposedly a Missouri pony. And again, this really raises his stock, and he winds up going to mass with William Roberts's. Um, wife and uh, having dinner parties with them. He gets right to the top of the organization and everything is looking really good when a woman he has seduced, who is a friend of his niece. Now, this man, Charles Clark, is married. His wife, Anne, in Toronto, is lying in bed ill. This man, Charles Clark, had been fired from the regular Toronto police force for, as Clark himself put it, a malicious, the charges, I'm quoting now, charges of a malicious woman, uh, false charges of a malicious woman, brackets, for having improper, for having improper connection with her, close brackets. (laughs) So this tells you something about who we're dealing with. One of his niece's friends, who has the unbelievable name of Miss Clapp, we don't know her first name, you just know her as Miss Clapp, had clearly... Uh, either been impregnated by Clark or, and or possibly, been promised marriage by Clark or Cornelius O'Sullivan. Then he tells her he's going back to Missouri and he never returns. But she knows his niece and his niece is furious with her uncle and tells, doesn't tell him he's a policeman, but says he's coming, he's from Welland in Ontario. That's where you need to inquire. She writes to the postmaster, uh, do you know this, do you know this man, Charles Clark? And the postmaster writes back, oh, yes, he's a secret policeman. (laughs) (laughs) John A. MacDonald and Gilbert McMicken, the chief of of secret police, were fit to be tied when they learned that. 
They also, by the way, blamed Miss Clapp herself, classic 19th century misogyny. They blamed Miss, Miss Clapp for seducing Charles Clark, this poor man who was away from home. I mean, that's a whole other story. Yeah. But now Charles Clark's cover has been blown. But what about the people he brought in to the force? And one of them, uh, his name was George Mothersill, although that's not the name. He, he went under the name of Philip Kavanaugh. Uh, he goes to this Fenian convention not knowing any of this. And uh, he tries to get in with everyone by saying, well, I'm a good friend of Cornelius O'Sullivan slash Charles Clark. Uh, he's one of my best pals. He, they run him out of town. They, he's told he's going to be killed. But another one, this guy, William Montgomery, who was brought in by, by Clark, who's in New York headquarters, says, he says when the news comes out, basically, that bastard, he fooled me just like he fooled you. And he's so cool. He's, he's, told, he's told at one stage, some people who don't expect it are going to feel a whiff of powder as the last thing they ever know. And he still stays there and, and says, yeah, whoever gets a whiff of powder deserves it, you know, as uh, traitors everywhere. And he is able, step by step, but they don't trust him for a few months. And then gradually, step by step, he's able to work his way up the organization. And if you, if you look at the cover of the book, uh, which you, I know, I know your listeners cannot see, but you'll see it's a, it's a bold Fenian lad carrying the Fenian flag into Canada while trampling on the Union Jack. Right? Now, what you don't know is that that same flag was carried two years later in 1868 in a Fenian parade in Philadelphia by William Montgomery, the secret policeman whom Charles Clark, a.k.a. Cornelius O'Sullivan, got into the Fenian Brotherhood. So it's just a, there's a whole series of stories like this, Austin, that uh, are so, absolutely fascinating. David, you mentioned that the archives, Johnny McDonald's records were, were there. When you talk about six, seven, ten, twenty people, what was going through my head is we live in a day in, in a world of very efficient wireless communications. And we have WhatsApp that's encoded or where we can do all sorts of encryption and this kind of stuff. Um, given what was there just at the time logistically to transmit information from Missouri or from Welland or from Toronto back to whether it be Ottawa or Montreal or vice versa and up to Quebec, that was no easy task. It was no easy task. Now, the telegraph was in operation then. So okay. it, was, it was expensive and it could be used. Um, and the Fenians used the telegraph to, to good effect, actually. Uh, it's probable, it's highly likely that they were able to intercept British messages uh, at the time of the Battle of Ridgeway. So they knew when the British troops were arriving. They knew the score there. Um, but, but communication was mainly by letter. And that mm. raises a whole other interesting set of questions um it was illegal to open letters uh, but in certain circumstances they were opened johnny mcdonald was actually um uh, concerned to prevent it from being open season on on letter opening but where there were reasonable grounds of doubt uh, then he authorized it but it always had to be under his own control on control because he knew there were many sort of he didn't put it quite like this, although he, he came close in his private correspondence. There were many mad orange magistrates out there who believed every Catholic was Athenian. And he was always trying to rein them in. 
so there was letter opening. But what the Fenians would do, say if you're, if you're from Ottawa and you want to send a message to uh, New York, you would get someone in the railway system, and there were quite a few Fenians in the railway system, to take the letters and deposit them in post boxes in Ogdensburg, just across the border. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then what the Canadian government did was start paying off uh, a letter or postmen, basically, on the border towns to get them to uh, open up and copy any suspicious letters that they that, that arrived that way. So there was sort of cat and mouse game going mm-hmm. on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, or again, um, in the the, uh, the the best example we have of this in Toronto is this is this really interesting cell. These were ultra revolutionaries. I mean, they were they they were uh, fully supportive of assassination. Uh, they had all kinds of plans to blow up. Uh, Fort York in Toronto, working with Irish soldiers in the regiments. They were they were deadly serious. These guys. How did they um, link up with the Fenians in Buffalo? They had their own people. They would not trust the mail at all. And this is actually one of the areas where women came in. It's overall a very male story. It is, after all, the Fenian Brotherhood. There were Fenian sisters in the United States. Hardly any evidence of of direct. Uh, female participation in Canada, but there is some. But uh, Mary Hartnett uh, was uh, the sister, literally a Athenian sister. She was the sister of a, of a Canadian Athenian. And she was the, she was the uh, depositing point for letters from Buffalo who were taken to her house directly uh, by Athenian emissaries, and then she would distribute them to the lads. Right, right. So, um, so it's, a really, it's a really interesting question. Um, and your main forms of communication are really the telegraph, which is obviously the fastest. Uh, uh, then you've got letters and then you've got rail. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can actually uh, plot much of this movement of the Fenians in Canada and the United States around railway lines. Right. It's a whole right. other story. Yeah. Well, we don't want to go into any other stories at the moment. David, fascinating uh, in every respect. And uh, yeah, as I, I find that, it, that there was this underworld and uh, subversive uh, police force, effectively, or, or um, secret police. Uh, fascinating. And um, I've learned a huge amount today. It's been fascinating ta- talking with you and learning, and I want to, take you to, to thank you for taking the time. Uh, we will share the cover when we put the posting out on Facebook and Twitter and all the rest of it. We'll, we'll share the cover there so they, they can tie it in. And uh, yeah, just what can I say? It's 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 amazing, I guess, the history that exists between Ireland and Canada on so many different strands and so many different levels. Oh, absolutely, Austin, it, it is. And uh, this really was a revelation for me. I mean, I, I knew about the Fenians, um, and I knew I knew about the Fenians in the United States more than in Canada was when I was working on Thomas Darcy McGee that I became aware of this underground world. You know, McGee wasn't tilting at windmills. He was actually um, fighting against something that did exist within Canada. Mm. Uh, uh, And then, you know, as I was reading around that, just entering this world of the secret police, and I have to confess to you, when I was writing volume two of the McGee biography, I really wanted to be writing this book. (laughs) (laughs) And and it took a lot longer than anticipated. Uh, It was going to be uh, like a 200-page book. It's a bit longer than that. Um, And um, 
the stories were just so rich. I mean, we haven't even touched on the assassination plot against Queen Victoria and all of this right. that they, yeah. they stumbled across. I know we're we're uh, running out of time Indeed. here. Indeed. It's well, and, and what I'm getting really enjoy as well is, is that it's so rich that uh, I can see somewhere uh, that this will end up on some screen or other, or some portions of it potentially will end up on some screen somewhere. I hope so. I think there are. I think uh, there's a, at least a Netflix series in here somewhere. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> or or a History Channel, something like that. Yes, indeed, indeed. David, thanks a million for taking the time. It's been a real pleasure and a real education. And a real pleasure talking with you, Austin, as always. Thank you so much.